Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode, in December of 1923, S. Glenn Young, a former United States Deputy Marshal, arrived in southern Illinois to help enforce prohibition laws, setting off a war between bootleggers and law enforcement, many of whom were prominent Klan members. When Carl and Earl Shelton were indicted for the murder of one of these members, a man named Caesar Cagle, they sought to form a tenuous alliance with Klan-connected Marion attorney Arlie O. Boswell. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 8, Part 2 No doubt a residue of that fear remained when Arlie Boswell and Earl Lingle were having lunch later in the White Way restaurant. Nor was he undisturbed when he saw two men of less than average height standing near the cash register at the front of the restaurant and staring at him. Busy with his lunch, Lingle noticed them only after Boswell nudged him, requesting that he identify the pair who had, it seemed, been eyeing him for at least five minutes. Without drawing attention to himself, the insurance man glanced up before going back to his sandwich and soup. That's Art Newman and Freddie Wooten, came his whispered reply. Boswell swallowed a quick breath. Like Carl Shelton, both men were known to him by reputation. As owner-proprietor of the notorious Arlington Hotel in East St. Louis, as bootlegger, gambler, avowed enemy of the Klan, and bosom friend and patron of the Shelton Boys, Newman had made his mark in the local underworld. Likewise, Wooten, his fellow gambler and frequent companion, had not gone unnoticed. Not only had Boswell heard of them, he had also heard they were planning to kill him at the first opportunity. Over the protests of his luncheon companion, he got up and walked to where they were. I'm Arlie Boswell. I'm from Marion, Illinois. And I'm sure you guys know who I am and where I'm from, because you've been watching me like a hawk for five minutes. As casually as possible, he mentioned the rumor of their plans to kill him, adding, I just want to look into the eyes of any son of a bitch that has got that idea, to see what they look like. Both men insisted that they were bothering no one. As for doing him harm, that was the farthest thing from their minds. They were just looking, that's all. In that case, said their accuser, using as much sarcasm as he dared, he would gladly forward them his photograph upon his return to Marion. They did not smile. It's a wonder they didn't slap me down, he observed in retrospect. You know, said Lingle after Boswell had returned to their table. You're the craziest son of a bitch I ever heard of. He shook his head in disbelief looking down at his food which had suddenly lost its savor. Why, they could have shot you in the back, Arlie. The attorney shook his head. No, he said, people of that stripe did their killing from behind doorways, from back alleys, and from all the shadows and oblique corners that abundantly darken and complicate their landscape. True, he had put on a show for a friend from home, but more than that, he had tricked Newman and Wooten into feeling that they could not frighten him. As luck would have it, 
Art Newman has left his own account of the meeting with Boswell in the White Way restaurant. According to him, Carl Shelton had suggested that he meet the man who is almost certain to be the next Williamson County State's Attorney. Shelton, according to Newman, had more up his sleeve than idle conversation. That night, as Boswell prepared to board the train at the railway station, who should be crouching behind a nearby boxcar but the Sheltons and their henchman, Charlie Briggs? It was only at Newman's urging that they called off their plans to bump off the reputed Klansman. Why this sudden concern on the part of a man who had devoted his best years to thwarting the law? It was the little gambler's studied belief that Boswell's sudden demise would cause him and his friends more trouble than it was worth. No doubt he was thinking about the clan's reaction in the wake of such a killing. When informed of the gangster's version of their encounter more than 50 years later, Boswell smiled broadly and labeled it just another of Newman's lies. But a good story, nevertheless. Chapter 9 Bloody Williamson This scene shifts to a slightly earlier time and another locale. However, the characters remain the same. On March 3rd, 1924, in the federal courtroom of Judge Walter C. Lindley at Danville, the trials began of more than 200 liquor violators. Conspicuous among them were Ora Thomas and Charlie Berger. Also present in the courtroom were some spectators who should have remained in Heron, notably S. Glenn Young and a few of his men. Young even wore his famous pearl-handled automatics. In the hallway before the trial convened, Young called Berger an unprintable name and, by so doing, nearly caused a riot. Berger asked United States Marshal James J. White for protection, adding that he had left his 38 in his hotel room. As it turned out, though, he had little to worry about, because Young was not permitted to carry his guns into the courtroom. Danville, as the Klansman learned to his dismay, was a long way from Marion and Heron. Another who found that so, as the trials progressed, was Ora Thomas. After being sentenced to one of the longer jail terms, the errant deputy was forced to listen as Judge Lindley denounced him at length. Berger, who was supposed to appear in court the afternoon of Wednesday, March 25th, did not do so until the next day, at which time he was asked by the judge why the forfeiture of his bond should not be revoked. There had been a misunderstanding at the time, Berger said. He further requested that the trial be postponed until Thursday, since his witnesses could not arrive before that time. Both requests were agreed to by Special Prosecutor Lawrence T. Allen, and Judge Lindley concurred. Berger's attorneys were S. Murray Clark of Danville and his longtime friend from Harrisburg, Alphaeus Guston. To the witness stand at last came George B. Simcox, father-in-law of S. Glenn Young and a former Deputy United States Marshal at Danville, but presently a federal court bailiff in East St. Louis. Simcox testified that on the morning of November 7th and on the nights of November 8th and 14th, he had bought liquor at Halfway. Berger, he testified, was behind the bar pouring drinks on all three occasions. Convincing as his testimony was, there was a problem. Why had Berger not recognized Simcox, a man he had known by sight for years? I was considerably lighter in weight and did not have my teeth. Would you object to taking your teeth out, Mr. Simcox, so that the jury may see how you look without them? It's rather embarrassing, but I'll do it. 
At this point, Berger's attorney S. Murray Clark of Danville raised an objection. I sincerely hope your objection may be sustained. Objection sustained. I see no good in Mr. Simcox taking his teeth out. Thank you, Judge. As the laughter subsided, Simcox stepped down from the witness stand. His son-in-law, S. Glenn Young, stated that on November 16th, he and two deputies, John Frothingham and J.W. Monday, both of Pope County, had purchased liquor at Halfway. Berger, he said, was not there at the time. Note, Frothingham, along with two other Klansmen, robbed the bank at Brownfield in Pope County later in 1924. Captured, they were sent to the Southern Illinois Penitentiary at Menard. Conspicuous among Berger's witnesses was Charles Sisney of Marion, an employee in the restaurant area. Sisney testified that he had never seen Berger behind the bar. As far as he knew, the owners were Mitch Wood, Charles Irving, and the late Cecil Knighton. Berger himself stated that the three were running halfway and that he had no interest in the place, although he had bought 20 acres across the road in July of 1923. He claimed he was not even on the premises at those times Simcox asserted he made the buys. Judge Lindley was not only convinced, he was furious. After the jury returned a verdict of guilty, he exercised his right to make a speech, as he had done earlier in the case of Ora Thomas. I am determined to stop this lying on the part of defense witnesses who seek to discredit government witnesses. Somebody will go to the penitentiary if that practice continues. Then he zeroed in on the man standing before him, saying, I don't know what to do with so-called citizens like you. You have money to hire lawyers. You've been defended as ably as any man could be. You've taken the witness stand and perjured yourself. Maybe I can stop you people from doing these things. I don't know. I am going to give you the limit. I will fine you $500 on the possession count, $1,000 on the sale count, and send you to jail for one year on the nuisance count. You are going to jail now. I will give your attorney 60 days to file a bill of exceptions in, but you cannot have one minute of delay in starting your sentence. Burgers was the heaviest sentence meted out to any of the 178 defendants. On April 22nd, he was in federal court again. In September of the previous year, he had been indicted on two counts, possession of liquor and possession of counterfeit revenue strip stamps. Both indictments had resulted from the raid at his premises on June 26, 1923. The defendant took this occasion to appeal his first conviction of March 27th, claiming that on the morning of November 7th, the time George Simcox testified that he had made the first buy, he, Berger, was in the office of Saline County State's Attorney Charles Thompson. He further stated that on the night of November 8th, he was aboard a train. The judge just shook his head. The jury has passed on the evidence in your case. I can do nothing for you. To the current charges, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 months in jail and a fine of $300 plus the court costs. He took what consolation he could from the fact that the two jail sentences were to run concurrently. Some days earlier, Beatrice and the two girls had gone to Danville in an attempt to persuade the judge to reduce the one-year sentence. Judge Lindley refused to reduce the sentence, 
but he did make reference to the visit in his parting remarks to the defendant. If anything on earth should wake a man up, it should be the possession of the wife and children you have. Judge Lindley added that it was hard for him to deprive wives and children of the support to which they were entitled, but he insisted that the law was supreme in such matters. Then it was Berger's turn. Your Honor, I have learned my lesson and you will never see me in this court again, but I will claim that I am innocent of the charge the jury convicted me on. Following the sentencing, Berger was taken to the United States Marshal's office where he told a reporter, I have been pretty much of a rotter in my life, but I never lied about anybody. I'd rather take a man out and shoot him than to lie about him and get him in jail. If they would give me the chance, I could prove the whole charge against me at Halfway Roadhouse was framed. I want George Simcox to think about what he's done all the time I am lying in jail away from my family. The man who was credited with putting the lights out for Knighton and Doring and who had fleeced the miners at his crap tables was getting as good as he gave, or so it seemed to those who read the newspapers. Actually, he fared quite well. The cold and damp of a jail cell were not for him. According to Beatrice, he made himself quite comfortable in part of the jailer's quarters. Moreover, his stretch at Danville kept him safely out of the gun sights of S. Glenn Young and his henchmen. Not that Young was doing all that well himself, as evidenced by the event on May 23rd when the Klansman and his pretty wife, Maud, were fired upon from a passing car while driving through the Oakville Bottoms on their way to East St. Louis following a successful Klan rally in Harrisburg. Although Young was hit only in the leg, his wife was blinded for life. Later, Judge Lindley's ruling that S. Glenn Young would be tried on indictments stemming from his raid tactics surely brought a smile to Berger's face. And just as surely a chuckle of satisfaction came when, in September, he learned of a dismissal he considered long overdue. S. Glenn Young had been officially expelled from the clan. Even those bits of good cheer, however, did not so much hold his attention as did the newspaper account of an incident at a Heron garage owned by John Smith one of that town's leading clansmen. It had started with a car, the side curtain dodge in which Jack Skelcher was mortally wounded in a roadblock on the Carterville Heron Road the day following the young shooting. A few hours earlier, word had reached the clam that Skelcher, along with Charlie Briggs and the two Sheltons, Carl and Earl, were the ones who had ambushed the youngs the day before. Somehow, they learned that some or all of the men were headed back into the county and set up their roadblocks accordingly. As stated, Skelcher died as a result of the gunfire, but Charlie Briggs, the only other person in the car, would live to fight another day despite his wounds. Bullet holes and all, the Dodge was taken to John Smith's garage, and there it remained until August 30th, the day that Carl and Earl Shelton were to go on trial before Judge E. N. Bowen in the Heron City Court for the killing of Caesar Cagle. They did not appear in court that day. Their attorney, the much-shot-at Delos Duty, rose to announce that the one witness against the brothers had vanished, and for that reason, the case should be dismissed. That Tim Cagle, the dead man's father, should agree with Duty no doubt influenced Judge Bowen in his decision to dismiss the case. Being more prudent than courageous, the judge was probably eager to be rid of the case. And besides that, the Sheltons were fellow anti-Klansmen. 
With this victory of sorts behind them, the Sheltons, accompanied by Sheriff Galligan, his special deputies Ora Thomas and Bud Allison, as well as other ardent anti-Klansmen, went to the Smith Garage for the purpose of retrieving the Dodge that had been held until that time as possible evidence to be used in the trial. John Smith was not in the building at the time, and one of the workmen there seemed less than eager to let the car go. Words were exchanged, and then a fistfight broke out. With uncommon slowness, a car filled with Klansmen drove past. Some of those in the sheriff's party stepped outside to talk with a passerby, who recklessly advised them to pocket their pistols. Instead, they forced the passengers out of the car. Then a shot rang out. Whether it came from the garage or from the street, this lone shot sparked a barrage of gunfire that left six men dead. Among the dead were Chester Reed, the man who had urged restraint only a few moments earlier, and a fellow bystander, Otto Rowland. The three dead or dying Klansmen were Dewey Newbold, Charles Woolard, and Green Dunning. From Sheriff Galligan's entourage, only Bud Allison was killed, but another man, Herman Femister, later died from his wounds. Luckier were Carl Shelton, who had only a bullet hole in his hand, and his brother Earl, who was shot in the right leg just under the knee. With Berger at Danville and S. Glenn Young in Atlanta, Georgia for medical treatment, Williamson County was clearly maintaining its unenviable reputation for sudden violence. But even with the latest incident, there were many in the county who cursed the newspapers for carrying accounts of the shootings. Especially to blame, they felt, were the metropolitan dailies that seemed to revel in the county's misfortunes. Chief among the culprits was the Chicago Tribune. Ever since the Heron Massacre in 1922, it had sent down its most prying reporters to sniff out the latest gun smoke and send back to the Windy City all the details and then some. Not far behind in their low esteem were the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and its rival, the Globe Democrat. Thanks to these and numerous other newspapers, the county was seen across the nation as living up to its description as Bloody Williamson. A description that had besmirched its name since the murderous days of the Vendetta back in the 1870s. Next time. I had a lay over there in Pittsburgh, and I was almost sure when I chained from one train to another I saw Charlie and this Jess Jones. I was scared to death. Every time a stranger would come along, I thought it was him after me. Thank you all for listening to Blanket Fort Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and visit BlanketFortRadioTheater.com to learn more about the project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.